Mark chapter 14 and beginning uh, verse 41-42 was in last week's lesson, but I didn't touch on it, so we'll start there this morning. Verse 41, then he, Jesus, uh, came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough, the hour has come, behold the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. <clears throat> A couple things I want to say to you. This, this is the Lord's omnipotence, he, he, omniscience. <clears throat> he knows that Judas has betrayed him. He knows that they're coming to get him. And uh, he doesn't try to escape because his hour is at hand. As we've gone through the gospel of Mark, and uh, we've seen several times in, in, in the, all the gospels, not just Mark, but Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But now his hour has come. Jesus came into the world knowing that he was going to go to the cross. <clears throat> and he knows that now is the time. In the garden, I, as I read, I'm really amazed. It, some commentators say that in the garden he made the final decision that he's going to come to the cross. And I'm thinking, okay, do, do they not read that he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world? I mean... Before the foundation of the world, um, Christ was coming to the cross. Uh, Christ, uh, I don't know how much, I don't know whether I should say this or not. If you you go to Bible college, you know, one of the things, one of the things you deal with is either Lapsarian theology or super Lapsarian theology. What that means is what decree came first in the mind of God? Did the decree to create come first, or did the decree for salvation come first, and then man? And and so you're thinking, well, how in the world would we ever know? (laughs) But there are people who decide, they decide which they believe, and they go with that, and so, but... The only reason I mention that to you is that I'm just saying to you, there are some things that we'll never understand. We will never. God is beyond our understanding. And he, uh, his thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. He has revealed to us certain things. And he has revealed them, that, and we can understand them to a degree, uh, to the degree of our own comprehension and to a degree of our own study. And so what we grasp and, and, and what, what's important in, in reading about what happens to Jesus at his rest at his trials is that we understand the, the world dismissed him as a charlatan. The world dismissed him as a revolutionary who, and the Jews dismissed him as that. And then the world is that he is of no significance in the, in the wide scheme of things. They happen to forget that they signed their checks, uh, 2022, the year of our Lord. They, they forget that. Uh, they forget that that's the hinge point of all of history, and all of history recognizes that. But, so they ignore that. But what we learn, maybe this morning, is that we learn <clears throat> that Jesus' trials were a sham and that he was never proven guilty, and his being put to death was a travesty of justice. 
And yet he willingly did it on our behalf. He willingly did it for, for us. So his hour has come. Uh, he agonized in the garden about bearing our sin. And uh, it wasn't him deciding that he was going to bear our sin. He agonized because he understood uh, the depth of anguish in his soul concerning the rejection of the Father. And I emphasized that last, two, last week to you, so I won't do it again. But his hour has come. He's, he's on schedule. He knows exactly what he's doing. He, he is not reacting to circumstances. He is uh, fulfilling prophecy. So he said, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then we read this in verse 43, down through 46. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of swords and clubs, came with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and took him. When you read a harmony of the Gospels, when you put the Gospels together, you get a little more detail about what happens. And so I want to give you just an idea of, of what happens first. They, they come into the garden and, and have this in your imagination. Here is a, a, an olive uh, orchard probably, uh, and, and this garden is set within it. It's dark. It's the middle of the night. Um, that... Uh, <clears throat> There are no street lights. There's no lighting. And Jesus and his disciples are there. Jesus is indistinguishable from the other disciples. He dresses like them. He, uh, uh, there's nothing to reveal. He doesn't have a, a glow, a halo above his head. He, just, he, he looks like an ordinary man. And so Ju- Judas had said to them that in the dark I'll identify him. So they come into the garden. And I think it's John that tells us. I've got it in here. But... When they first come into the garden, Jesus said to them, Who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And when he said that, they all fell down. They were all knocked down by the power of God. And I always wonder, wouldn't that have made them think twice? Wouldn't they have, with the knowledge they had, wouldn't they have said, Maybe something's wrong here. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. I mean, they all were knocked down. And I'm astounded that they continued on their way. You know, I would think, I think I'll go home and leave this guy be. But, <clears throat> but they didn't. So then they come to him, and Judas betrays him with a, a kiss. Um. I put in the notes a couple of weeks ago, I don't think I mentioned it, but uh, I think, I forgot what psalm it is, Psalm 43, but my own familiar friend has, has betrayed me. What a, what a wonder, and one of the commentators I read after said, Judas has remembered that all these 2,000 years and will for eternity, not with remorse, but with anguish. Uh, see, people don't have remorse in hell. They're never sorry for their sins. I think that sometimes when people I don't agree with politically, I think one day they're going to wake up. One day, one day, one day they're going to recognize they're wrong. Yeah, and they will, but they'll never be remorseful. And I'm not talking about the Democrats. I'm talking about some Republicans. I'm talking about 
I'm talking about people who are lost, period, and, and, don't, and don't know Christ. And so there'll never be remorse, but there'll always be memory. There'll always be, a, see, regret is part of remorse. And uh, there'll always be that in their lives. Well, we also learn from Luke that at this point in time, Peter draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of a, a man named Malchus, who is the servant of the high priest. And Jesus heals him. He said, uh, suffer to be so and heals that ear. And you think, well, why did Jesus do that? Why did he heal him? If not, they would have arrested Mark. I mean, they would have arrested Peter. They would have kept looking for Peter until they had arrested Peter. And then they would probably have put him to death as well as Jesus. And the scripture being fulfilled, that when you smite the shepherd, Zechariah, uh, when you smite the shepherd, the sheep are going to be scattered. And he, he was going to be safe. Jesus had told them they would be safe, but they would be, they would be scattered. And so it wasn't right for Peter to be arrested. And so Jesus healed uh, one of the men who came to capture him. He healed him. At that time, again, I'm thinking, I'm astounded that the guy who's the who's the servant to the high priest didn't say, "He just put my ear back on." He is the son of God. He has to be the son of God. Nobody can do that. The high priest can't do that. Nobody can do that unless they're God, and yet he doesn't. And 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 I always want to make application to, and I. When I, think, when I think how astounded I am about these things I just mentioned, sometimes I'm astounded when I sin. I'm astounded for what I know, as long as I walk with Christ, that I still sin. I still, I still have those wicked thoughts. I, I, still, and I don't imagine what my thoughts might be, but I, I, still, I still have sinful thoughts. I still have angry thoughts. I still have resentful thoughts. I still have envious thoughts, lustful thoughts. I still have all those things... In my life. And I'm, I'm, I'm making it clear to you there are thoughts only, no, not actions, except for a little controversy with my spouse, maybe. <laughs> that might be. So. <laughs> Sometimes that turns into actions. <clears throat> she got after me that day because a couple of weeks ago I told you she stabbed me with a butcher knife, and she did. And, and she did. It was true. I didn't, I, I didn't emphasize that. It was true. Jesus makes this statement here in verse 48. He, he, he answers and said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs who take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus rebukes them in a sense, but he, he, I think what he's doing, he's trying to make them think. I want to give you an overview of what's happening. When you read in John that he came into his own, but they received him not. Okay, he's going to be presented. He is being presented. He has been presented. He's being presented, and he's going to be presented to the Jewish nation. He has presented himself for for three years of active ministry to the Jewish nation. He has presented himself in the temple and taught the people. He has had interaction uh, theologically, with the different with the different groups of people who lead Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, even the priests, and and he has presented himself for who he is. 
he's still doing that. He's going to do that in his trials. And he, he's, he's trying to make them realize, okay, he's not trying to get out of going to the cross, but he's trying to say, I am who I am, and you're wrong, and you are accountable. And this is what he says, when he, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. He's saying to them, there's something wrong in your actions. There's, there's something wrong in the choices you're making because you are devious and you're operating under the cover of night. And that is, that is the darkness of evil and you're participating in it and you should be aware of that. You're going to be held accountable for that. And so that's what he's saying. But then he said, but I understand it because the scripture must be fulfilled. Now listen, he, he, he's saying that to them. He's teaching his disciples. Here they are there in the garden and, and this crowd comes and they have staves and clubs and swords and they're, they're frightened. And, and I would be and you would be. And they're frightened for Christ and for themselves. And, and yet he's still teaching them this is Scripture. This is Scripture being fulfilled. This is prophecy. What's happening right now is prophecy being fulfilled. I want you to understand that. And then we read this in, in verse 50. They all forsook him and fled. And now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth tied around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him. Then he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. I want to read to you what, uh, <clears throat> what um, Spurgeon said about that. I think, I think it's really interesting. Spurgeon said this, he said, The modest spirit of Mark seemed to say, Friend Peter, when the Holy Ghost moves me to tell of thy fault and let it stand on record, talking about Peter's denial, he also constrains me to write my own as a sort of preface to it, for I too, in my mad harebrained folly, would have run unclothed as I was upon the guard to rescue my Lord and Master, Yet at the first sign of the rough legionnaires, at the first gleam of their swords, away I fled, timid, faint-hearted, and afraid that I should be too roughly handled. And you, <clears throat> you may be saying, is that Mark? Is that Mark who fled away in the, in the night? And the Bible doesn't tell us, and so it's just pure speculation. I happen to believe it is. Uh, I, I, Spurgeon happened to believe it, it was. Here, here's why. We, we learn from Scripture that at one time they met in Mark's family home. And it doesn't say that the upper room's in Mark's family home, but they'd already met in Mark's family home, in Mark's mother's home. <clears throat> and I believe the upper room was in Mark's family home. And possibly, and I'm saying to you possibly, maybe, but uh, Mark knew they were having the Lord's Supper there. They knew they were having the Passover Supper in that upper room. And then possibly when Judas brought the mob, they probably came to that house first looking for Jesus. And Mark hears of it and hears them and the tumult that's taking place when they're demanding to know where Jesus is. And probably then, having already gone to bed, then he throws on this linen, it's either a garment or a sheet or something, and he runs to the garden possibly to warn them. And he doesn't get there in time to warn them, which wouldn't have made any difference at all because Jesus wouldn't have fled. 
but he is there, and this is his humble way of saying, I was there, and I fled too. I was there, and I experienced the same thing the disciples experienced, and I fled as well. John does the same thing in his gospel. He, he refers to himself without naming himself. And so I, I think this was Mark. I think Mark's commendable for going. And uh, he is not to be harshly <laughs> treated for, for fleeing away. Uh, it fulfills scripture. And, uh, and he is like the rest of us. Um, you, you, he has some amount of courage, but then sometimes it fails on us. So, um, now we read this, verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and elders and the scribes. Okay, here's the representation of Israel. All the elders, the chief priests, uh, and the scribes. When, when, when Mark gives us this information about the trial, he, he doesn't give us full information. So when you, when you read the Gospels together, uh, and if you want to go online, you can look online and you can buy a book called The Harmony of the Gospels, uh, one by Robertson and probably others as well. Or you can just look online and you can get it on the page in front of you and you can read it as it happens. Uh, the Gospels put together. And so what happens, Jesus really has... Three trials before the Jewish nation. They take him first. John, John tells us this. That the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, doesn't tell us, but John tells us. They take him first to Annas. Annas is the high priest or had been the high priest. But he's no longer the high priest because the Romans have disposed him. But he is the father-in-law of the present high priest whose name is Caiaphas. And so... <clears throat> They probably, and I'm saying probably, they probably live in a compound. Okay, and when you read Josephus or, or Edersheim, you find that they, if, you, if you had the money, if you were wealthy enough, you, you built your house around a courtyard. Uh, there are some townhouses like that in town. And uh, I've, I've stayed, we stayed in a couple of motels. You, you have this courtyard and the buildings are around it and maybe Annas lives on one side Caiaphas lives on the other. Uh, Annas had other sons who became high priests. Maybe they lived in various, but around this courtyard. And in the middle was a fire pit, what I'd call a fire pit. And we stayed in a couple hotels or condos before that have had a fire pit out. And, and probably you've seen that as well. And so, <clears throat> that, that, so they had this central courtyard that, that could go back and forth, have gates going into the courtyard. And so first they go to Annas. He's probably the power behind the present high priest. He's the, he's the father-in-law. <clears throat> Father-in-laws have a lot of authority with son-in-laws. <clears throat> it's fun to be the speaker. You get, you know... <laughs> Except Jeff calls me occasionally and holds me accountable. <clears throat> you know, it's uh, so they go they go in this and he goes to Annas first, and he's questioned there, and then he's taken to Caiaphas' house, probably a course, a, across the courtyard. And one, one of the historians say that probably when 
since the high priest lived there, they would have a room open to the courtyard. So it'd be like a it'd be like an enclosed porch, but it wouldn't have the fourth wall, and it'd be open to the courtyard because when the Sanhedrin would meet there at his house, or when they'd have a gathering, they couldn't all get inside the room, so they'd be in the courtyard. And we know that because as Peter denies the Lord, at some point in time, the Lord is before the Sanhedrin, and he turns and looks at Peter. Peter's out by the, by the fire. And so he turns and looks at him, and so Peter is seeing this crowd in the other side of the courtyard. He knows what's happening. And he's listening, and he's talking to the people around him during the time. And we'll deal with him at the end of the chapter. But <clears throat> So when they take Jesus from Annas uh, over to Caiaphas' house, they probably had time while he was being questioned by Annas to assemble some of the chief priests. And, all. and again, you have to use your imagination. You have to think, how did they assemble in the middle of the night? And it still was in the middle of the night. And how did they assemble? Because... The, the chief priests had told them about Judas and told them that he was going to de- betray him that night and probably they would capture Jesus that night and for them to be ready to assemble. Now I want you to remember, here's some things about Jewish law. They could not, the, 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 the council could not meet at night. They could not judge, have a judgment at night. They couldn't hold court at night. had to be in the daytime. And it had to be, <clears throat> um, and, and the, 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 the priests could not be the prosecutor. They could not present evidence. They were only the judges. There had to be someone from the outside who brought a charge. Again, our law is kind of like their law, is that there had to be someone from the outside who brought a charge and the priests couldn't prosecute. It was the people who were bringing the charge that prosecuted whoever was on trial. And the priests were to be unbiased and fair and to render a, a neutral judgment based upon facts. And none of these things happened in the case of Jesus. They acted as the prosecutor. They acted as the uh, not only the judges, but they brought the accusations and they sought out witnesses and so they acted as the prosecutor, starting at Annas' house, moving to Caiaphas' house, and, and Jesus is before them knowing that this is, is not true and uh, that cannot be um, substantiated. Uh, again, I, where do we read? Look in verse 55 again. The chief priests of the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but could find none. So they're seeking witnesses. And who are they seeking them from at that time of night? From the mob that's there. I, I mean, they're seeking people out of that mob that had heard Jesus at different times seeking testimony uh, against him, which is unlawful for them to do. Even if they found Jesus guilty, they couldn't render a guilty verdict until they had spent a whole day fasting. And it was impossible for them to fast on the coming feast day. The next day was a feast day. They couldn't, they couldn't fast then. And so, but they rendered a verdict this night, and they couldn't do that. That's against their own law. So here they are, they're violating all their own laws because they so detest him, and they so desire to get rid of him, that they don't care about their own law. They don't care. They, they care about their monetary 
um, income from the temple, and they care about their own power position before the Roman government. Isn't that a shame? But see, that's mankind. That's fallen nature. To some degree, that's my unregenerate nature. That's your unregenerate nature. It's me first, and maybe you after that. And, 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 and the Holy Spirit helps us, thank God, from the Word of God, helps us to fight against that and to, to love people and to care, to care and to be willing sometimes to sacrifice ourselves. <clears throat> so when we read this, in verse 57, then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, where's my place? <laughs> Uh, rose up, bore false words against him, saying, verse 58, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But, but not even then did their testimony agree. I think uh, uh, I want to read to you what G. Campbell Morgan said. So I'm going to read a paragraph about what he said about their accusation about Jesus saying that he would destroy the temple himself with his hands. So here's what G. Cameron Morgan said. He said, this is the most diabolical form of untruth because it is an untruth in which there is an element of truth. We remember Tennyson's words, a lie that is all a lie may be met and fought outright, but a lie that is partly the truth is a harder matter to fight. Jesus had said, you remember, he had said that uh, this temple will be destroyed. And you remember they came out of the temple and the, and the disciples said, Lord, look at that temple. Isn't that magnificent? And I'm paraphrasing. And he said, this temple will be destroyed, but I will raise it up after three days. He's speaking of the temple of his body. Uh, that, that's not maybe not clear when we read that in the gospel, but he's, he's, he's not speaking of that temple. He's not going to raise that temple back in three days. He's going to raise his, his temple. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was in him, with him, that just like it was with us in his humanity. Uh, he is the Holy Spirit. He is God the Father. He is, again, those things beyond our comprehension. But that's what he is speaking about is himself. So there's an element of truth here, but it is diabolical used, and he, he doesn't respond to that. And verse 59, but even then their testimony, even then did their, but not even then did their testimony agree. And then verse 60, we, we read this. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing what is it these men testify against you? Okay, violation of their law. The, 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 the high priest can't, they, they, they can't accuse him. They, they can't question him. They're not the people who do that. They're the judges. And, and so he's so frustrated. Uh, one author says he's so frustrated that um, he responds himself and begins to challenge uh, the, the prisoner in the dock. Again, I'm going to read you what Spurgeon said. I think it's so insightful. He said it was a tactical confession that Christ had been proven innocent up till then. The high priest would not have needed to draw something out of the accused, out of the accused one, if there had been sufficient material against him elsewhere. 
The trial had been a dead failure up to that point, and he knew it and was red with rage. Mm, that Spurgeon's kind of, you know, guessing about that because that's not in the Scripture. Now he attempts to bully the prisoner that he may extract some declaration from him which may save all further trouble of witnesses and end the matter. So the high priest now begins to question Jesus directly. And when he said, aren't you going to... Aren't you going to respond to what these men are testifying against you? And see, they've already had other false witnesses who've said things about him and about what he did. And, and Jesus doesn't respond. Not at all. Nothing. You know, he could have said to them, don't you remember the people I've healed? There, there are thousands of people that I've healed. Because one, one occasion he said he healed everyone that was there. There are thousands of people that he healed. There are people he raised from the dead there were people he cured of leprosy. There were people he gave sight to the blind. I mean, he, he, could have, he could have said, don't you remember of all those things that I did? But he says nothing. Does that bring to mind uh, Isaiah 53? I, I, Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why? Because it's his hour. This is why he came. The scripture's being fulfilled. He came to die. He came to give himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And and so he willingly suffered these uh, injustices. Uh, That's the least of it. He willingly suffered uh, on, on our behalf for this. And now this is interesting. This is where things change a little bit in verse 61. But he kept silent and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Okay, they don't use the word God. They don't use the word for God. So he calls him the Son of the Blessed. And so he's asking Jesus directly, Are you the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the Messiah is really what he's saying. Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus responds to that question. It's really interesting. Um, one of the other gospels that he, he says, I adjure you by God. So he's, he's, he's actually putting him under oath in the sense saying, are you the son of God? And Jesus does respond to that in verse 62. And again, I want you to get the impact of this. Jesus said, I am, I am, I am. He is the I am. Remember, it goes all the way back to Moses and, and Exodus. I, I, God said, Moses said, How, who do I tell them? Who do I tell them sent me? I am, I am. And the words mean, I am everything. I am, I, I, I am all things. I, I am everything. I am the creator. I'm the sustainer. I am, I am no beginning, no end, the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover. He is, I am. And, and, and it helps us to grasp that. It helps us think. I don't know about you. We always try to think what God's like. You try to think what God's like. I want to know what God's like. And we can't do it. We can see Jesus. And the Bible tells us that he's the exact representation of God in the flesh. And when it's speaking about that, it's not speaking about his body. He, he, 
I think it's Isaiah that tells us that he is indistinguishable between men. There's nothing about his appearance that we would desire him, which means he wasn't tall and good-looking and dark-headed. I had a guy the other day, and I don't want to insult anybody, but I had a guy the other day I was playing golf with, and he, he told me, he said, uh, he said I, I think I'm in trouble. I may need marriage counseling. He said, my wife told me that she was never going to be married. When we got married. She said, I'm never going to be married to a... To a trying to think of the words. Okay, three things. I'm never going to be married to a, a fat, bald, old guy. And he said, so pray I don't lose my hair. <laughs> now, where's that in the note? <laughs> and I said, I'll pray for you. <laughs> because he's, the other two is too late. And there's some, there's some things we can't do anything about. So Jesus makes this tremendous statement, I I am. And then he says this, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. Jesus doesn't use the word for God either, but he says the right hand of the power, which they understood, and, and coming with the clouds of heaven. So you know what he's saying to them? When God's seated on his throne, they the Jewish people recognize that he's the judge. He's the judge of everything. He is the judge of every person. He's the judge of every event. He is the judge of everything. And Jesus is saying to you, see, this is the impact of this. I am. Jesus is saying, I am God. I am God. I am all that God is. I am everything that God is. I am God. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man. You will see me. You will see God. You you will see the incarnation of God. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father, of the power of the Father. You're going to see him there in the same seat of judgment. And this is what he's saying. He doesn't use the word judgment here, but that's what, it, that's what the phrasing means. You're going to see him in the same seat of judgment, and you are going to bow before him because you're going to be under his judgment and, and the truth is, they already are. They already are. Um, it's not going to happen in, in when Christ comes again and then when he has the great white throne judgment. It's not going to happen then. It is already, they're already under judgment. You know, when you go, what, what's, what's the most famous verse in the Bible, in the New Testament? John 3.16, would you agree with that? Okay, you know what it says, whosoever will may, you know, you can be saved, whosoever will may. But it goes past that, and it says, let me see if I remember what it says, because this is not notes either. But what it says is that if you don't believe, you're condemned already. You're already condemned. Is that you don't come to the end of your life and make a decision whether you believe or not. You've already decided that. Right here, right now, either you believe or you don't. See, it's already decided. And it was already decided for me when I was born, already decided for you when you are born. There came a day when God opened my eyes by the Holy Spirit through the Word, or by the Word through the Holy Spirit, however you want to say it. He opened my eyes, and I understood that I'm a sinner, He's the Savior, and I move from condemnation to salvation. Through no effort of my own, only only because God opened my eyes and God humbled my heart, 
and I received what he did. He had already done it. And, and, and that's true with you as well. But I, I want you to understand, it doesn't matter how good a person is. It doesn't matter what they've accomplished in life. It doesn't matter how much they've given to the church or to the Lord's work or to missions. None of those things matter. Is that you move from condemnation, which you're already in, to salvation when you trust in Christ as Savior. Period. Isn't that interesting? And our world keeps trying to make the world better. And I, I wish the world were better. I, I wish it were better uh, for the sake of our grandchildren. I wish it were better for, for the sake of the people around the world who, who live in poverty. I, I wish it were better. But that's not the issue. The issue is, are you saved? Where are you going to spend eternity? Have you moved from condemnation? You're already under condemnation. And the world doesn't know it. The world justifies themselves. We as individuals justify ourselves. And here's what Jesus is saying. This is the impact. Jesus is saying, I am your judge. I am your judge. Not that I'm going to be. I already am. You know, and I trusted him as Savior, but he's still my judge. He's going to judge my behavior now. Now, not for salvation, but for uh, accountability. I'm accountable to him in this life. I'm going to be accountable at the end of this life, and uh, I'll, I'll be rewarded or my rewards will burn based upon my, not my actions, not how much I achieve, not, not, none of those things, but on my response to him and my motivation in my life toward him. And it's true with you. He's your judge, and uh, he's holding you accountable today Good or bad, he's holding you accountable. And the accountability will last through eternity. You say, you're getting all that, uh, that one verse? Yep. And then the last part of that verse, he's coming in the clouds of heaven. He's coming. See, Jesus said, I am God, I'm the judge, and I'm coming. See, that, hey, that would preach, wouldn't it? I, I, I am coming, I'm coming. You better be prepared because I'm coming. And uh, he, is, he is coming. And I think soon. been 2,000 years since he said that, plus. And I think he is coming very soon. Okay. Uh, now let's move beyond, beyond that. And when he says that, then the high priest tore his clothes, verse 63, and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? For you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officials struck him and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. In their, in their culture, to spit on someone was the greatest insult you could give. Still pretty bad insult even in our culture. It is it, it is a derogatory, uh, demeaning act towards someone. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this. He said, Be astonished, O heavens, and be horribly afraid. His face is the light of the universe. His person is the glory of heaven. And they began to spit on him. Alas, my God, that man should be so base. You know, they could have arrested him. They could have charged him. They didn't have to do that. They, they didn't have to do that. But they did. 
and they hit him with the palms of their hands. And now we come to Peter's denial. We'll just touch with it. You're familiar with this, and we'll just touch on it for, for just a moment. Verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Uh, back in verse 54, Peter followed at a distance. We, we read um, one of the other Gospels, I think the Gospel of John. One of the disciples knew someone at the high priest's house and got John, I mean, got Peter admitted to the courtyard. He, he, he said to the girl at the gate, you know, my friend, let him in. And so that probably was John. Uh, possibly could have, been, could have been Mark. But anyway, Peter's there, and now we read this in verse 66. Peter was below the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch, and a roaster, a, a roaster, a rooster crowed, and the servant girl saw him again and, and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again, and a little while later, those who stood uh, stood by said to Peter again, Surely you're one of them, you're a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And a second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Okay, but the Gospel of John tells us that uh, when that second time the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked at John. And uh, No, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And, uh, and then Peter had this conviction, and then he wept. And then he went out and, and wept. I don't know if he went out of the courtyard, he just went out from the fire or whatever, away from their presence, and, and he wept. And then um, I, I want to not leave it there, but you remember what Jesus has said to Peter, when you're converted, feed my sheep. When you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Uh, later, he's going to say, feed my sheep. But he had already told Peter, you're going to deny me. You're, you're going to, you know, before the crop grows three times and then. But when you're converted, that converted in that sense is not talking about salvation, but it's talking about when you've repented, when you have come back to, to, to faith. I, I want you to strengthen your brethren. And when, when Jesus resurrected, he he says to Mary in the garden, go and tell Peter and the disciples that I'm alive. And, and then, so he, he has this meeting with Peter at some point in time, and then he meets with all the disciples. But he knew Peter was going to be restored, and Peter was restored. Peter got his courage back. Months after this, after the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost, Peter stands in front of these same priests, and he, 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 he defiles them. And he said that we, we're speaking on behalf of the one whom you took and crucified. He, he, he defies them to their face and gets by with it. He, he's no longer afraid. He doesn't run away. Uh, they arrest him, and he said, I won't quit preaching in the name of Christ. And then they bring him back before the council, and he says, you're the ones who crucified him. And then he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, like 3,000 people or so, and, or, or more than 3,000, because 3,000 get saved. But he's saying to them, 
Um, and, and actually, it's in Acts chapter 4 that I jotted down. Um, I did somewhere. Let me see if I can find it. But he, he basically, he says to them that uh, this was predetermined, that, that this happened to Christ because it was predetermined. I guess I didn't put it in the notes. And so, but he says in Acts chapter 4, and it said this, this was predetermined, and, and it's predetermined that Pilate and the Jews, and they would take him and they would crucify him. And so, so he just saying that this was the will of God. So Peter understood now finally, fully, the other disciples did as well, and they then lived for the Lord and they suffered on behalf of the Lord. I want to give you one more, one more thing from Spurgeon before we're done. Spurgeon said there are three ways that Jesus' experience should affect us. So this is application to us. This is implication to us. He said, number one, we should, barely bear, we should bravely bear pain and humil- humiliation for the sake of Jesus ourselves. Do you remember Jesus said to them, you know, if they've done this to the master, they're going to do it to you. If, if they've done this, and he says to the women on, on the way, that are weeping for him on the way when he's carrying his cross, going to be crucified, and he says to them, if they've done this in a green branch, what are they going to do in the dry? You know, so he's saying to them that this is going to happen to you, and here he's saying, Spurgeon said, we should bravely bear that humiliation ourselves. We should testify to Christ in our lives. Number two, he said, we should be, we should more diligent, we should be more diligent to praise Christ. We should praise Christ. We, we, should, we should praise Him in our daily life. We should praise Him in our speech. We should praise Him in our witness to other people. We should acknowledge what He did on our behalf and show our gratitude for that publicly, vocally, and in our family and in our life. And then third, He said, we should have more assurance and confidence in receiving the finished work of Jesus for our redemption. Now, and then he goes on and explains that. He gives a little more information. I, I want to say it to you. Here's a quote from him. He said, Surely I know that he who suffered this, this humiliation, since he was verily the son of the blessed, m- must have ability to save us. He, he, he did this on our behalf, so he has the ability to save us. Such griefs must be a full atonement for our transgression. Glory be to God, that spittle on his countenance means a clear, bright face for me. Those false accusations on his character means no condemnation for me. And what Spurgeon is saying, him taking our place sets us free. Him bearing that for us causes us to be saved. Isn't that wonderful? That's astounding. And it's astounding that he would do that. See, that again, that's beyond our, comp- our comprehension. God died for you. God suffered humiliation for you. You know, I, I, can, I can grasp the death more than I can the humiliation and the scorn. Because we hate that, don't we? We hate that. I, I hate being told I'm wrong, and I hate worse being proved I'm wrong. I just hate that. <laughs> and and we, we, especially in a... In a in society, in a group of our peers, we hate being condemned for anything. We hate being shown up. We, hate, we just hate that. 
And Jesus did it more than, more than we ever could imagine. He did it for us. He's God, and he did that. I just can't, I can't grasp that. I can't put my mind around that. Okay, next week we're going to look um, then the remainder of the trials and begin on the road to Calvary. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time this morning. Lord, we thank you for what Christ did for us. Help us, help us to understand more than we have that, that Christ literally, it, it, was, it was real. His suffering was real. Um, Lord, just as his anguish in the garden was real, his humiliation was real, and he didn't respond to it because it had a purpose. And the purpose was greater than his own personal um, respectability. Lord, he knew who he was. Uh, he, he knew he was going to be with you. He knew this was to your glory, and he willingly suffered it. And it was suffering. Let us remember it was suffering, and it was terrible, terrible suffering. And might we be grateful. Might it, might it cause our gratitude to rise up and overflow to your glory. Please help us by your spirit to do that. In Christ's name, amen. Well, God bless you. We'll see you in church.